So we'll start at verse 13 of Job chapter 1. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job chapter 42, verses 10 to 17. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapoch. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. And let's pray as we prepare to hear God in his word. Our Father, thank you for your compassion and mercy on us. Thank you for your great kindness to us. And thank you for the way in which you make yourself known in all these things in your word. Lord, as we 
read it now as we spend this time dwelling in it. Lord, we pray that we would not go away unchanged by this encounter. We pray that we would know you more, that we would find in you the God who knows us, the God who loves us, God who rescues us from darkness. We pray that you would speak to each one of us today, Lord. Amen. So we've been kind of in and out of, uh, of the book of James over the past year and a little bit. Um, don't worry if you've missed the kind of earlier parts of that. Um, it's fairly self-contained where we're up to. Um, but we're up to chapter 5, um, and this is kind of the, the, the conclusion to the letter. Um, this week and then in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll hopefully finish off. But today we'll be reading together chapter 5. And verses 1 to 12, in which God, speaking through James, says this. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who wasn't opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient And stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. And to just cast your mind forward to the end of the service in about three hours when I finish talking. <laughs> There's probably somebody who you'd like to talk to. Probably as you came in, sort of eyed out where, where they were sitting. And as the crowd of people starts to stand up, And to move across the room, 
You find them, you spot the person you're looking for, you want to talk to them, you start heading towards them, but as you go, you need to weave through a lot of other people, some of whom might want to talk to you on the way. You may stop and talk to them along the way, but you still have one eye on the person who you were looking out for. You're still, you're still trying to make eye contact to, to say, don't leave, I'm on my way to you. And to me, the book of James sometimes feels a little bit like this, that all the way through, James is speaking to a variety of different people about a variety of different things, but his, his heart, his, his kind of eye is really on those Christians who are in the greatest need, those who are in the greatest pain, those who are suffering. It's clear all through the letter that shining through James' own kind of attitude about that is Christ's own care for those in his flock who are the most vulnerable, for those who are the least, for those who are last in the line. James is talking to other people, he's talking about other things, but in the background he's always trying to make life better for those who are poor, for those who are suffering. And so uh, the start in chapter 1, he said that the religion that God accepts as pure and faultless involves looking after orphans and widows in their distress. And then in chapter 2, when he was talking about real faith, the example of it that he gave is not to simply say nice things to the poor, but to actually do something about their physical needs. It's like he's weaving his way across the room towards them, until he finally gets there partway through chapter 5. And I wonder if that's perhaps why for us, for many of us, reading James' letter is quite uncomfortable and quite challenging. Um, Because if life is going well for us, if things are relatively going smoothly, then we are the people who he's kind of on his way past as he makes his way to those whose life isn't going well. And it's uncomfortable for us because we, we can see that he has this eye on the poor and we can see his, his care for the needy is admirable, but it's also a little bit convicting as we, we find we often don't match him in that. So this is where we are in, in chapter 5, that he's about to finally arrive at his destination to reach the people he, he's really had his eye on. And, and these verses, it kind of splits into two. And so in the first six verses, he speaks to the rich about what they have done to the poor. And then in, from verse 7 onwards, he, after the whole letter of build-up, he finally arrives and addresses the poor directly. And so we'll start with the rich in, in verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you, your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of those harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, but you have lived on the earth In luxury and self-indulgence, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, James is speaking here, I think, to the rich 
non-believer, to those he, he spoke about in chapter 2 who were exploiting poorer Christians. Now, of course, if you read the whole Bible and, and the wider New Testament, there is a call to the rich to turn back, to, to repent, to turn back to God, to, to receive forgiveness for all of this that they have been doing wrong, to, to, to be spared this judgment, to let Christ pay for their sin. But here James is talking about those who won't, those who refuse to turn back, those who will hear this kind of warning but remain unmoved and think, no, I'm okay, I'll be fine. Carry on as they were. And James is saying, no, you will pay. You will pay for what you have done. The way you have lived your life will count against you. It it will testify in court against you on the day that Jesus comes to judge, and he is coming. So what is it that they're doing? What is it that is so bad that that demands such a, a serious and heavy response from the Lord Jesus on the day he comes? There's really two kind of big problems with their, their lifestyle here. Two, two big issues, and the first of these is that they are chasing what rots. They are chasing things that don't last. They've made their lives all about the pursuit of stuff and experiences in this life. Things that don't last. Look at those words he uses. Rotted, moth-eaten, corroded. And then it turns to even more active kinds of destruction, a day of slaughter. This is the day of the Lord's coming, the great day when the Lord will come to make right every wrong. It's the day of judgment. It will be a terrible day, a miserable day for the unrepentant rich. A day of misery, not random misery, but deserved Misery, self-inflicted misery, because they have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. But it turns out all they were doing was fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. They were, they were like the turkey in the days before Christmas, just eating and eating all the grain and thinking, oh, all this free food on offer, life is great. Not realizing it just makes it more of a target on Christmas Eve. It's not just that they chase things that rot, that that don't last. There's something else to this too, and it's that they step on others on the way to those things. It is a, a, a life of luxury lived at the expense of the poor. It's getting stuff by taking it from others. You see that in, in verse 4, the wages that they've failed to pay their workers cry out against them. They've condemned and murdered the innocent one who wasn't opposing them. So so they're inflicting misery on people for for no reason other than to make their own lives better. This, This fantastic lifestyle that they're enjoying is built on the foundations of suffering for those who did nothing to deserve that suffering. And while this is about the rich who won't turn back. 
All through this letter, James has been kind of warning us in the background, warning Christians, don't be captivated by that lifestyle. Don't let the dangerous glory of wealth and, and good times in this life distract you away from, from the better, lasting glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a sobering reminder that chasing the lifestyle of wealth comes with a very real human cost. It's not just a, a neutral thing that's just about you and what you have. It, it is incredibly hard, if not impossible, to live a life of luxury without stepping on others to get there. It's a good thing to remember whenever we're attracted to that life and all its trappings. The life of of buying things, of having experiences that we don't really need just because we can. James warns us, not only is that a treasure that rots, it's a treasure that tends to come at the cost of misery to others. I think in our modern world, we can kind of forget that because we tend to be a few steps removed from the workers who are mowing the fields. They're not exactly outside our window for most of us. And that makes it easier to think that there's no injustice there just because we can't see it. That all that we saw is we bought a product, we paid for something, what we thought was a reasonable price, with money that we earned fairly, so everything's fine, isn't it? Are we really sure? Are we really sure that those, those comforts and those little luxuries that we enjoy have really come to us without stepping on the less fortunate? Are we sure that, that when we, we buy something, that the delivery drivers, that the, the factory workers, that the farmers were paid a fair wage, were treated well. None of us has the power to entirely reinvent the modern world. This this is a a far too big and complex problem for that. But I think what we can, each of us do, is consider our place in that world. That when we buy what we need. We can look for ethical products. When we're considering whether to buy things that we don't need, we, but might like to have, we can perhaps weigh as part of the cost. Not how much money am I paying, but does me having this in some way deprive somebody else of some good? Am, am I becoming complicit in that? Am I supporting unfair treatment of workers by buying this product? Is there something that I could do that is perhaps less convenient but a fairer option? Or in our workplaces, we can perhaps try to help the parts of the supply chain that we do have influence over be characterized by fairness. To say, okay, I can't change how everybody treats their workers, but I'm going to make sure that the people in my department, the people I work with, are going to be treated fairly by me, I can start there. 
But remember where we started with James really weaving his way across the room towards the poor, towards those who are suffering. As it turns out, James isn't mainly talking to the ruined rich here. He's saying all this deliberately within earshot of those the rich are oppressing. And now at last, after talking about them for four chapters and urging others to love them in real practical ways, in verse 7, he finally gets there. He finally speaks directly to the Christians who are having the hard time, to those who are being exploited. And he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. If the rich are to be ruined on the day the Lord comes, then what should the poor do? What should the, the, the Christians who are their victims do? How should they think about this? Well, they're to be patient. They're to be the patient poor. They're, knowing that the Lord's coming is near, knowing that Jesus will return to make everything right again, that's how we can stand firm. And we were thinking about this last autumn when we were in the book of Malachi, and that great day that Jesus returns, it is a day of judgment for those who have not trusted him. But for those who have, it is a great day. It's a day when the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. It's a day where he, Malachi says we will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. A day of satisfaction, a day of justice, a day of refreshment and healing. It's a day when Jesus comes and looks us in the eye and says, I saw it all. Everything that you went through, everything that you put up with, I was watching and I saw it all. And now you watch me make everything right. See how much I love you as I make everything right, as I make it all worth it for you. The day of harvest is coming, James says, so stand firm. Instead of chasing things that rot, be patient and wait for the things that are going to last. Wait for that blessed eternal life that is not going to go away, that is not going to corrode or rot. Let the rains come, let the seasons pass. Let God's plan work out in his time. Be patient. But what does that mean? He keeps saying be patient and wait, but what does he mean by that? How do we actually wait? Is he just saying, just sit quietly, do nothing, suffer in silence until Jesus comes? Well, in the, the rest of the verses we're looking at today, in verse 9 to 12, there's a kind of structure. Um, and here Jesus describes for us what the patient life looks like. Can we have the, the slide up, please, Dave? So you'll see there's a kind of, of mirrored pattern here, where in the middle is this main point that he's making. Blessed are those who persevere, those who wait, those who keep going, will enjoy this, the, these riches in eternal life. Then on either side of that is an example from the Old Testament. Before is the prophets who are, who are commended for being patient 
in suffering, and then after is Job, who persevered in suffering. And James gives Job as an example of one who saw that blessing. And we've been thinking about that in the first part of our service. You have heard, he says, of Job's perseverance, and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So Job endured this immense suffering, but at the end of it, after everything, what the Lord finally brought about was an even greater life than Job had started out with. It it was so far beyond what he had before. God just poured out this blessing on him, and so James says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, and that's what Job saw. He saw that not just as, as words about God or as, as God sort of expressing a, a feeling that, of sympathy for him. He saw that in real actual compensation for what he'd been through in real camels and oxen and children and riches. And that is what the Lord's compassion and mercy is going to be like for us who wait. That, that is Christ's promise to us too. It is a new creation life, a new life in a new world. Life full of blessing, full of riches and wealth. But not not in the the grasping way and, and stepping on others way that we have it now. But the other example is the prophet's. And the prophets are a slightly different example because most of them didn't see that kind of blessing that Job saw. They saw perhaps moments where things did work out, but they didn't see that kind of happy ending, most of them. Verse 10, James highlights something slightly different about the prophets for us. He says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's drawing our attention especially to the way in which the prophets spoke as they were patient and as they were patient in suffering. All through this letter, James has really been quite interested in our words, in in the way that we speak, in how our words and our actions line up, in how our words and the faith in our hearts line up. And so coming back to that, that structure that, that you can see, I think that's why surrounding these two examples are two commands about how to speak or how not to speak. Don't grumble and don't swear, because each of these is in its own way a kind of breaking or, or a going against of what the prophets were doing of speaking in the name of the Lord. So let, let's think a little bit about what it means to speak in the name of the Lord so that we can then see how these two commands break with that. Speaking in the the name of the Lord is is a bit like being an ambassador of a country. An ambassador is there to represent the country, to act, and to speak in the name of their country. That is, they, they carry some authority to represent their country in what they say and in what they do. So when they speak, it is kind of like the country that they are representing is speaking through them. And so in that way, when the prophets speak, 
They are speaking representing God. They're speaking with God's authority. It's not just human words. It is God's words because it's, it's human words spoken in God's name. But ambassadors, because they're acting and speaking in the name of their, their country, they can't just say what they want. They need to speak in a way that is appropriate to that name, to that reputation of their country. That Their words need to represent and communicate well to people what their country is about, what their, what their country's interests are, what, what it is, what they stand for. And so any scandal that the ambassador gets into brings a bad name upon the country they represent. If they misspeak and say something wrong, they, they have misspoken in the name of the country they're representing. I think this is why James gives us these two commands about two ways that we might speak that would give God a bad name, that would misrepresent his name. Two scandals that actually I think we're especially vulnerable to fall into when life is hard, when, when we're, we're feeling downtrodden and suffering. And so James is reminding us that as we are waiting for the Lord, we are speaking for the Lord, that people are paying attention to what we are saying as we suffer and what we are saying as Christians as we suffer. So the first command is don't grumble in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Isn't it tempting when things are hard and when you can't really do anything about the people who are making it hard to start taking it out on each other? The pressure builds up and it's, it's coming from someone above you and you can't really do anything or say anything about that. So we start to vent sideways and take it out on each other, on, on our loved ones, on, on those at home on our closest friends and start taking our frustrations out, getting angry and complaining about things that would actually be quite little under normal circumstances and complain about the small things we do because we feel so powerless to say anything about the big things that we're suffering. It's so easy for the bullied to become bullies, isn't it? But this kind of grumbling, it doesn't really fit with God's name because God's name is his, it's his reputation. It's who he is. He is the one who is full of compassion and mercy. He is the judge standing at the door. God's reputation is the one who will judge. So we don't need to make it our business to judge everybody because that's his name. That's not really ours. We don't need to complain or to sit in judgment against each other because the real judge is standing at the door. And if we find ourselves doing that, if we find ourselves grumbling a lot, it's, could it be that we've forgotten? Or, or perhaps it hasn't really taken root in us that Jesus is going to come to make all these things right. 
the big things and the small things. For he knows what he's doing. He is the judge. He is the savior. If we've forgotten his name, as we grumble at each other, if God's people are always bickering and complaining to each other, what does that do when we are ambassadors of God's name in the world? As, as people look at, at the, the people carrying the name of God, at the Christians carrying the name of Christ, are people going to see from our, our grumbling words that we have a God who's in control, that we have a God who's coming to make things right. We have a God who's, who's promised that we don't need to make it our problem to fix everything. Are people going to know the name of God from the way that we grumble to each other? And that's why James warns us, the judge is standing at the door, or you will be judged. Don't grumble or you will be judged. Because grumbling is characteristic of those who are not waiting of those who are not trusting. Grumbling is inconsistent with waiting for Jesus' return because it calls into question his name. Either his, his kindness and his compassion and his willingness to help, or his strength and his power and his ability to help, or his, his wisdom in knowing when and how he's going to help. If God is good, if God is strong, if God is wise, then we don't need to grumble. Then in verse 12, his other example of words not spoken in the Lord's name. Don't swear. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. And he's applying the third commandment there, the third of the Ten Commandments. Do not misuse the Lord's name in, in the old phrasing. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And he's also drawing on what Jesus said about that command in Matthew 23 when he was rebuking the teachers of the law for, for making kind of promises and vows not on God, but on other things that were kind of related to God, or, or just swearing by other things. And, and Jesus said to them, anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. So he was rebuking them because they were kind of skirting around the command not to vow or swear by God by substituting in things that were associated with God. So, so what they were doing was they were making empty promises. And it seemed like those promises carried real spiritual seriousness, but it, it actually left them a loophole or a back door to go back on their word. So they were making those promises to God. They were making those promises to other people in, in the, the kind of the presence of God. I think when we're going through a hard time, we're probably a little bit more likely to do that, a little bit more likely to make those kind of empty bargaining promises either to God or, or calling on God as witness. 
I promise to commit this to you, God, or, or to give up that if you just get me out of the suffering. Only when things do turn out good that we go back on our word. But when we go back on our word, when we make promises and break them, we do so as ambassadors of God. We do so as those carrying the name of God in the world. And so the world thinks that if the Christians aren't reliable, then Christ isn't reliable. If his people can't be trusted, how can he be? You know, they make their promises and they break them. So, you know, you talk about Jesus promising to save us. Why should that mean anything to us? It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. And so rather than making it even worse by drawing God's name into it directly, God would rather just we limit the damage of that and simply just aim for saying a simple yes or no. To say yes and mean it. To say no and mean it. I think another way that we might swear when we are suffering is in those things that just kind of slip out of our mouths when we're frustrated. Things like, for heaven's sake, OMG. We say these things and they just come out and we, we perhaps don't really think about them. We might not be consciously or intentionally blaming God for whatever's kind of provoked our frustration or shock. But we are suggesting that. God is the one in heaven. And so being frustrated at heaven for our situations suggests to people that the one in heaven is somehow wrong, in the wrong for what's happening to us. Again, it's calling into question God's name. It's dragging God's name into our suffering in a way that forgets his promises. It forgets that he's sovereign over our suffering, that his reasons for allowing this are good and for our good, that he will bring good through it, that he will return to make it all worth it. So the Lord Jesus will come and he wants us to wait for him, to wait for him in a way that shapes how we speak, not grumbling, not swearing. And that's how not to speak. As, as we close, let's just think about more positively, what can we say about what it does mean to speak in the name of the Lord as we wait for his return? And the examples that James has given us are really great for that. In their patience in suffering, the prophets were not silent about that suffering. They spoke words about that suffering, but they spoke words that fit with the name of the Lord into those situations. They spoke laments. They sang psalms. They spoke promises of rescue. They spoke rebukes of injustice. They spoke calls to return. They spoke reminders 
that the Lord is good, remind us that the Lord knows what he's doing. They call people to come back to God before he comes to judge. Job, too, when he he persevered in suffering, he didn't suffer silently. He cried out to God. As we read at the start, he also spoke words that honored the name of the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And he's commended that in all that he spoke, he didn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So he, he was careful about his words in his suffering. He spoke in a way that, that carried the name of God, that understood who God is and what God was going to do about that suffering. And that affected the way that he spoke. All that they spoke fit with the name of God. All their words in their suffering was consistent with who God is and what God does for those who suffer in his name. And so if we're suffering, if life is hard, if we are in pain, if our lives are being made a misery by others, it may be that God has called us to that suffering, but he's not called us to suffer in silence. Rather, he's called us to suffer and wait for this glorious hope, and he has made us ambassadors of that hope. He reveals his promises to us. He reveals his good name to us as the one who will come and make it all right, as the judge, as the savior. He reveals his name to us, and then he lets us carry his name through our suffering. He gives us the honor of making us ambassadors of his name. That gives real meaning, real purpose to our suffering. God has tied his reputation in the world's eyes up in us and in how we face suffering and in how we speak of him as we face suffering. Brothers and sisters, we are Christians. We carry the name of Christ along with the knowledge of all that that means for us and all that it could mean for others. Of all his compassion, of all his mercy, of all the blessing and hope that he promises. As we carry Jesus' name, we make, we carry his great promise to us as well, that he will come to make it all right. Let's speak in a way that honors that name that we carry. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, your name is to be praised. We thank you for all that you are in your compassion and your mercy to us. We pray that we would grow in our trust of all that you are and all that you have in store of all the blessings that await those who wait for your return. We pray that you would give us wisdom to carry your name well, to speak well as your ambassadors in this world, 
especially, Lord, when we suffer. We pray that you would give us enough sight of you, enough hope in all that you have for us to speak well, to honor your name. Amen.